listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. John Lewis scoffed at the settlements, demanded higher wages and employer contributions to the union's welfare fund for his miners, and called 400,000 UMW members out on strike on April 1st. Truman seized the mines under the smith Connolly Act when the Supreme Court upheld contempt judgments against the UMW and Lewis himself, he called off the strike. When the railroad train men and the locomotive engines issued a strike call in May, Truman asked Congress for authority to draft strikers into the military. The union settled. Some unions revived the general strike. In January 1946, 10,000 people from 30 AFL and CIO unions rallied in Stanford, Connecticut under the banner, We Will Not Go Back to the Old Days, after striking machinists were attacked by state and city police. The next month, unions shut down Lancaster, Pennsylvania for two days to stop police attacks on striking city transit workers. Later that month, 20,000 AFL and CIO union members rallied in Houston, Texas to force the mayor to negotiate with AFL City and County Employees Union. In December, when the Oakland, California Merchants Association refused to negotiate with retail clerks, Local 1265, 30,000 people joined a 54-hour work holiday more like revolution than an industrial dispute. While employers freely took out injunctions against strike-related activities, They did not revive the old terrorist tactics. The New Deal and wartime labor regulations had established the right to organize and bargain collectively, and the union's ability to defend and advance their members' interests against the biggest corporations and at the highest levels of government confirmed the new importance of organized labor's role in American society and politics. In November 1946, in Atlantic City, The CIO debated and adopted a new program. The delegates wanted fair employment practices enforced, strike-related injunctions banned, the Wagner Act extended to agricultural workers, and much more. The delegates called for continued price and rent controls, massive investment in public housing, higher taxes on corporations, and expanded Social Security. They recommended federal prosecutions of lynchings, condemned poll taxes, and other impediments to voting, 
and asked the Senate to expel Mississippi Klansman Theodore Bilbo. They urged affiliates to negotiate for equal pay and opportunities, endorsed an equal rights amendments for women, and called for funding maternal and child health services, daycare, nursery schools, and school lunches. Amid the exuberant consensus on social justice, one division threatened unity. Murray introduced a declaration of policy asking the delegates to endorse democracy, Americanism, and Roosevelt's four freedoms and reject efforts of the Communist Party to interfere in the affairs of the CIO. Communist-led unions made up a fifth of CIO membership, but only two delegates voted against the, the declaration. Corporate lobbyists formed Congress. Their goal was Taft-Hartley, the Labor Management Relations Act. It outlawed mass picketing, sympathy strikes, and secondary boycotts, banned closed shops and unions of supervisors, held unions responsible for strike-related damages, banned strikes by federal employees, let states ban union shops, authorized the president to issue eight-day injunctions if strikes threatened national health and safety, provided NLRB protection for decertification and deauthorization elections, and required unions seeking NLRB jurisdiction to file non-communist affidavits every year for every officer above shop steward. As New York Congressman Donald O'Toole observed, the bill was composed sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, page by page, by the National Association of Manufacturers. Congress passed over Truman's veto on June 23, 1947. The post-war anti-communist campaign was different from previous campaigns as it fed off an aggressive U.S. foreign policy. The war was in progress when the government started planning the post-war world. Democracy, American style, needed prosperity, which depended on trade. As a State Department official said, we've got to plan an enormously increased production in this country after the war. There won't be any question about our needing greatly increased foreign markets. In 1944, the Anglo-American allies set up the International Monetary Fund to regulate financial transactions based on the dollar and the International Bank of Reconstruction and Development to promote recovery from the war's devastation. Communism was a main obstacle. The Soviet Union had holded the Nazis, advance and communists everywhere who had justly supported resistance Axis occupation looked to the Soviets, now stronger than ever, for inspiration and guidance, or for direct instructions. In 1946, the U.S. set up the Strategic Air Command, its only mission to prepare to drop the new atomic bombs on the Soviet Union. In March 1947, Truman declared the U.S. must help peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures, and asked Congress for $400 million in military and economic aid for Turkey which guarded the southern Soviet border and Greece, where communist insurrections threatened a British-sponsored monarchy. The worldwide 
war against communism went back and forth. Chinese forces suppressed the Filipino Hakbala Hap movement. The French drove Indo-Chinese communists underground. The Greek uprising failed, but communists took over Czechoslovakia and the Chinese Red Army marched into Beijing, India, Burma, Palestine, and Indonesia. One independence and rebellion simmered in colonial Africa. A steel industry journal predicted maintaining and building our preparation for war will be big business for at least a considerable period ahead. The military budget went from $12 billion a year in 1950 to $40 billion in 1953. The bulk of it for nuclear weapons development and U.S. bases around the world. In 1962, Business Week magazine found that 24,000 companies had defense contracts. This Cold War fostered the longest and largest Red Scare in U.S. history. Beginning in 1948, Communist Party leaders were indicted, convicted, and imprisoned for Smith Act violations. Under the 1950 Internal Security Act, officers and members of 600 communist actions organizations had to register with the Subversive Activities Control Board. But the campaign went far beyond the party. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce published Communist Infiltration in the United States in 1946. Communists within the labor movement and communists within the government, both in 1947, claiming to show how far the Soviet plot had advanced communists already influenced if they did not actually run the NLRB and the Labor Department. Acting on the Chamber's advice, Truman established a loyalty program in 1947. It eventually covered more than 15 million people employed in government or by companies with government contracts. Six congressional committees investigated the loyalty of government employees in 1948. The best known was headed by Wisconsin Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy. By 1953 and 54, 51 different committees were in the hunt. The House Un-American Activities Committee alone held 147 hearings. By then, nearly 30,000 people had been accused of disloyalty and 10,000 lost their jobs. Others lost the right to vote as well as unemployment, disability, old age, and veterans benefits. The Red Scare touched every corner of American life. In 1952, Revlon Cosmetics changed the name of its Russian sable face powders to Dark Dark. A city manager in Wheeling, West Virginia noticed some binning machines that dispensed gum and trinkets, representing the world's nations. Finding some stamped USSR, he reported the vendors to the FBI. A passerby called New York City Police when he spotted utility workers signaling surveyors with red flags. The Soviet development of a nuclear arsenal sparked a nationwide civil defense program which taught millions of children to duck and cover. Some building contractors specialized in in-home bomb shelters, from $20 foxholes to $5,000 honeymoon models. A sexual panic accompanied the Red Scare and 21 states passed laws against sexual psychopaths, claiming homosexuals to be tainted with the same moral degeneracy as communists. 
1950, Congressional Subcommittee declared them security risk and homosexuals were barred from government services in 1953. Gay and lesbian activists started the Mattachine Society in 1957 and Daughters of Belides in 1957 to push for legal and civil rights. Mattachine founder Harry Hay recalled, the five were all union members experienced in organizing underground. Rebel Clayton, a leader in the CIO Marine Cooks and Stewards, observed, If you let them red bait, they will race bait. If you let them race bait, they'll queen bait. Though Congress cut off Fair Employment Practices Committee funding in 1946, in 1947 the President's Committee on Civil Rights condemned wartime Japanese internment and warned that racist incidents made excellent propaganda ammunition for communist agents. In 1948, after A. Philip Randolph and other civil rights activists threatened to organize a boycott of the draft, Truman ordered the military to desegregate. When the Supreme Court reversed Plessy v. Ferguson and declared school segregation unconstitutional in Brown v. Board of Education 1954, Voice of America Overseas Radio broadcast the text of the decision in 34 languages. In 1957, President Eisenhower sent troops to enforce a court order letting black students enroll at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then signed the first federal Civil Rights Act since Reconstruction, letting the government seek injunctions against voting rights violations and creating a Civil Rights Commission. After 60,000 Puerto Ricans had been drafted or enlisted for Korea, the colony received Commonwealth status in 1952. Remaining under U.S. law, though its citizens could not vote in federal elections, nor its representatives vote in Congress. The 1952 McCarran-Walters Immigration Act voided the 1790 law restricting naturalization to white persons and set new quotas. Each Asian country got 100 a year. Alaska and Hawaii became states in 1959 on State Department advised Congress reformed quotas again in 1965, allowing up to 20,000 rivals a year from every independent nation outside the Americas. The war against fascism never diminished labor anti-communism. After a California grassroots campaign directed by a veteran UCAPAWAETA organizer, Luisa Marino took an NLRB election from them in October 1945, the Teamsters boycotted canneries with FTA contracts, signed a union shop agreement with growers, attacked, locked out FTA pickets, and roused Catholic priests to tell parishioners to shun the communist-led FTA. The Teamsters won a new election in August 1946. In Europe, the AFL's Free Trade Union Committee ran by renegade communists J. Lowe Stone paid criminal syndicates to attack French communist stock workers and Greek unions to set out the insurrection. Anti-communists wrecked the CIO's first major post-war drive. Philip Murray announced Operation Dixie in May 1946 as a civil rights crusade. CIO organizing director Alan Haywood elaborated, only with a united movement Based on equal rights, can we win our fight for economic security for all? Over the summer and fall, CIO unions established up to 20 new southern locals a week. 
The AFL launched a rival drive and relentlessly red-baited the CIO. So did employers, politicians, and the Klan. In fact, Operation Dixie excluded communists from staff and, hoping to woo textile workers, fielded mostly white organizers and no women. The textile drive pondered. No labor leader liked Taft-Hartley. The UAW shut down auto plants for five hours to support 200,000 people rallying against the Slave Labor Act in Detroit. Lewis proposed to the 1947 AFT convention that unions nullify the law by refusing to sign non-communist affidavits. But only the International Typographical Union backed the suggestion. Shortly afterwards, he led the UMW out of the Federation. In 1948, both Truman and Republican Thomas Dewey ran on Cold War platforms. AFL and most CIO leaders supported Truman. Communist-led unions backed Henry Wallace running on a progressive party platform opposing the Cold War. Truman won by an exceedingly small margin. His labor backers were disappointed to find Taft-Hartley would not be repealed, but they staunchly supported his foreign policy. In 1949, the CIO followed Belgium Union leaders out of the WFTU when it opposed the Marshall Plan. The CIO joined the AFL in founding the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions, ICFTU. Lovestone and Associates spent Marshall Plan money to get German Union leaders to drop an initiative for labor unity across occupational zones and to break a citywide strike in divided Berlin. Murray fired left-wing CIO staffers, CIO leaders like Mike Quill of the Transit Workers and Joe Corrin of the National Maritime Union denounced their former allies. Industrial councils cut off left-led locals. In January 1949, United Furniture Workers Local 282 went on strike at the Memphis Furniture Company. Police escorted scabs and visited local members at home late at night to ask questions, but the strikers, mostly black women, had strong backing from the community. The Memphis Industrial Council withdrew support and the strike failed. Memphis Furniture Company remained non-union until 1978. Taft-Hartley had changed the rules. Unions that refused to file affidavits were barred from NLRB ballots. He refused, and the UAW won NLRB elections in EU shops in Hartford, Connecticut and Brooklyn, New York. By 1949, the CIO's communication workers and still workers and the AFL's machinists and International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers were raiding UG locals. The UE convention that September voted to file the affidavits, but the raids continued. When he withheld CIO dues in protest, the Congress expelled it and chartered the rival International Union of Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, IUE. Murray met with Westinghouse and General Electric executives to plan IUE takeovers of UE locals. Over 1949 and 1950, the CIO expelled 10 more unions, FTA, UOPWA, mine, mill, and smelter workers, 
farm equipment workers, fur and leather workers, international longshoremen and warehousemen, ILWU, United Public Workers, UPW, American Communications Association, National Union of Marine Cooks and Stewards, and International Fishermen and Allied Workers. These were among the CIO unions most committed to racial and gender equity. FTH organized Mexican Americans, Filipinos, and African Americans, especially women. Marine cooks and stewards were exceptionally racially diverse and packed with gay men as well. Mine Mill was mostly African Americans in the Southeast and Mexican Americans in the Southwest. ILWU organized Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, Puerto Rican, Portuguese, and Native Hawaiian field workers. UOPWA and UPW members were mostly white women, but UOPWA also organized Prudential Life Insurance Salesmen, and UPW organized black workers in federal cafeterias in Washington, and African Italian laborers in the Bannon Canal Zone. Left-led unions helped the party-supported National Negro Labor Council turn out 1,500 pickets to protest racist hiring policies at American Airlines in Cleveland, Ohio in December 1952. And the farm equipment workers local at International Harvesters supported a 1953 campaign to get black workers hired at the new General Electric plant in Louisville, Kentucky. These unions actively built themselves on community support. In 1951, Empire Zinc got an injunction against an eight-month-old mine will strike in Bayard, New Mexico. As miner's wife, Elvira Moreno, wrote the local newspaper, the order restrains our husbands, but it does not restrain us. Women from all over the country have joined our ranks, and the picket line is solid. The line stayed solid against assaults and arrests for seven months, and won the miners modest gains. The left-led union also practiced militant solidarity. When Westinghouse fired two socialist worker party members as security risk from its South Philadelphia plant, Local 107 stopped work until the company took them back. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.